Today on the show, we've got Donald Miller, historian and author of the book, Masters of the Air. I think this is one of the best interviews we've recorded for School of War. It was certainly one of my favorite conversations yet, combining as it did discussions about strategy, the evolution of warfare, combat itself, the Second World War, and of course, the making of the show, Masters of the Air, which listeners know is something that I've been eagerly anticipating. The show's now on the air at Apple TV, so let's get into its genesis and the nature of the savage war in the skies that it depicts. It is a prescription for war, this Iraqi invasion of Kuwait. December 7, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The bloody experience of Vietnam is to end in a stalemate. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran. The fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall never surrender. For maps, videos, and images, follow us on Instagram, and also feel free to follow me on Twitter at Aaron B. McLean. Hi, I'm Aaron McLean. Thanks for joining School of War. I am delighted to welcome to the show today, Donald Miller. He's the New York Times bestselling author of 10 books, the John Henry McCracken Emeritus Professor of History at Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. Uh, and one of his books, Masters of the Air, is being made into a Steven Spielberg, Tom Hanks limited series in the spirit of Band of Brothers and the Pacific, which is a very exciting development. Donald, thank you so much for joining us on the show. It's a pleasure. Thank you. So I want to I want to talk about the show to the extent that we can, given that it's not yet been released. We're recording this here at the start of October. And I want to talk about mostly about the 8th Air Force and the 100th Bomb Group and the, the story that you document in Masters of the Air. But before we get to that, maybe would you mind just telling us a bit about yourself? You know, how did you grow up? How did you become interested in history generally, but, you know, specifically the history of the Second World War and the 8th Air Force? Well, as a youth, I was surrounded by World War II. I grew up in Reading, Pennsylvania, a little railroad town, and, and uh, it's on the Monopoly board. And... We lived in an immigrant neighborhood. Every adult male I knew on that, in that neighborhood served in World War II. So as, as a kid, I was surrounded by the war. And um, we lived after the war. I was born in November of 44. And so everyone was coming home. I, I don't have keen memories of that. But my father and mother and my mother's two sisters and their husbands all lived in the same house with their parents and, and a bunch of kids running around. But up in the attic, there were these storage chests and footlockers. And my uncle had served in the, in the big red one, first to land, you know, in the first uh, minute on D-Day and had another uncle that flew B-29s in the Pacific and et cetera. So all that paraphernalia was up there, including one uncle who was a janitor who had gas masks and everything else. So we were playing army and my dad was president of the local Catholic war veterans. There were little parades, gun salutes at the cemetery, things like that. And it's all part of my life, you know, but I really didn't continue that. And once I got into high school, I, I, I gravitated more toward other things, especially sports and in college. I, I, took some history courses, but I was primarily a philosophy major. And I still retained an interest in World War II. It was in, it was kind of bred in the bones, but it, it wasn't until after my fifth book, actually, I did a book on Chicago 
and it did pretty well. And that year, 1995, my, my father passed away. And he had served in the Air Force in World War II as a radio gunner on a B-17 and as a control tower operator, as they called him, that air traffic controller. And he helped to plot some of the, the southern route to Europe. Uh, they flew the bombers over two routes through Labrador and down skirting Brazil over Africa and in that way. And so he got into the European theater. And the I kind of felt guilty and that I had, you know, because this was so much part of everyone's lives where we lived. And not that the men talked directly about it with the children. My father rarely did that. He was a typical veteran. But we'd all go down to the Catholic War veterans where my father was president. And um, they'd bribe us with orange sodas and nickels, and we'd play the slot machines and things like that. So that uh, we wouldn't report where, where they were to my mother. And uh, the, it was, it, it just seemed that I was missing autobiographically, you know, one of the key elements of my life. You know, I, I just remember coming out of um, 12 o'clock high, which my parents took me to at an early age. And I thought, and my dad said, you know, that, that's a real story. I said, really? Yeah, 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 it is. And I remember seeing a Jimmy Stewart movie, the same sort of thing, you know, and Glenn Miller story. And so I had a chance in night, the same year to interview Eugene Sledge and who wrote one of the great, kind of the catch 22 of world of civil war, of world war two history and a searing account actually. And I was just transported by that, that book and that interview. He came up to interview Lou Rita who did a lot of documentaries in the fifties and in, in, in sixties and, and continuing on in, 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 into the, into the eighties. And, and this is the nineties when I interviewed Sledge, I and three other readers associates. And, and I thought, this is, this is great stuff. And I got to get into this war. And, and I did, I thought the best way to start would be since I knew so little about it, except what I had read cursorily and, and seen on documentaries, you know, like victory at sea and things like that. But I thought the best way to do it is to write a history and learn it, you know, um, as I wrote it. And so in the late nineties, I began a book that culminated in a volume called the story of world war II. I borrowed the title from a Henry Steele Commander book, but I didn't use hardly any of Commander's material. His was an anthology that was written during the war and it, it described action in the various theaters from largely Yank and Stars and Stripes reporters. But I wanted to go much, much beyond that. And I wanted to tell the story of war through combat. And that has, has been a central theme of my work. How do human beings hold up under the stress and strain of combat? With the 8th Air Force, how do the men get into the planes after a horrific, catastrophic mission? How does a guy, you know, go into a foxhole like my uncle did in, in the Ardennes and 12 hours in the middle of the night? you know, in the middle of that gloomy forest and wake up in the morning and he's one of three in that foxhole and two of the other guys are dead. How do you, how do you assimilate that? How do you continue? And how do you move on? Does it continue to affect you later? And I really got into this whole idea of, of breakdown under, under, under combat. 
I was astonished by the number of men that were put on temporary uh, leave, you know, for combat stress in North Africa. Over 30,000, if you can believe that. It was a medical emergency, and they were calling in psychiatrists and psychologists from all across the country. And I came across this book called Men on Fire, and it was written by an Air Force combat surgeon. And it's just a compendium of firsthand accounts from this perspective. He's trying to cure these guys. They're little medical reports, but they're written eloquently, powerfully, almost novelistically. And I thought, you know, this is this is an entry into the story, if I can begin with, with this sort of thing. So I set out to write a book on the 8th Air Force, and you get a little overwhelmed because of the enormity of the bibliography, which is so many books published on it. And so, but I didn't see anything that resembled the book I wanted to write. And I'm a trespasser. I, I don't stay to in, in, in academic lanes. And I move around a lot. I was a philosophy major as an undergraduate. I wrote a, a history of Chicago and a, later a history of modern Manhattan and different kinds of books and a, a biography of a Amer- major American intellectual. So I, I had some practice in, in moving into different, different periods of time and, di- and, and completely different genres. And I like that approach and I continue it because you come in so fresh you transcend the historiography, you get over on top of it, and you write your own story. And because you're fresh, I think you have a lot of enthusiasm for the subject because you're just learning it yourself. Yep. And Ed Bars, who was a, a very famous uh, Civil War historian, once told me when I first met him down at Vicksburg, I did a book on Vicksburg, Ulysses Grant, and he took me on a tour of the battlefield, and I knew nothing about Vicksburg. I was just exploring whether I was going to do the book, but the battlefield was, as, as Ed throw it to life, was transfixing. So when we finished, Ed said, let's go get a drink. And uh, we did. And he said, you know, Miller, why you're going to write the best book on Vicksburg? I said, no, Ed, I don't. He said, because you don't know a goddamn thing about it. <laughs> I thought, well, okay. And he said, we're, we're in here, you know, and in the forest and, you know, writing a tree by tree account. And maybe you can get you know, above the forest and write a holistic kind of study. And I thought that would be interesting if I could take, write a book that dealt with all facets of a military outfit. That is training, flight crews, combat surgeons, civilians left behind and civilians at the front. That is those who were under the bombs as well as those who were in the bombers. And the various dimensions of the Air Force, the kinds of targets they hit, target analysis, I was very interested in the idea. It had become a cliche in the early part of around 9-11 and in, in that decade, that bombing didn't work at all. And I, I'm always skeptical. And so I thought, I'm going to actually read all 150-some volumes of the Strategic Bomb Survey. And when I read that, I found that the chief critic of bombing was actually a, a guy who wrote for the survey, John Kenneth Galbraith, a very famous economist. And I actually done an interesting thing, and, and it was, I thought it was unethical. The uh, attacked the bombing in Vietnam, which was not working well. And he equated it with the, the ineffectiveness of bombing, as he put it, in World War II. And I found that when I read through his volume 
in the strategic bomb survey. He actually says the bombing worked. It, it's buried in somewhere in a middle volume, but he makes a strong case that it did work. It was late working, but it did work. It made the D-Day invasion possible without a tritting German Luftwaffe. There is no invasion, couldn't have been an invasion. When the Russian army, you know, takes on the Germans and the Germans run out of air support, their army's fighting without fighter support and, and they get chewed up in various other ways, particularly after D-Day, when we defeat the Luftwaffe. Germany's still producing planes, but they don't have enough fuel because we start to hit their synthetic oil plants and they don't have enough trained pilots because the whole eight Air Force mission in the lead up to D-Day can only be described as a pilot killing campaign. We knew that we couldn't get out a lot of the production facilities because so many of them were underground or in forest factories that were hard to locate. But they just didn't have the, the, the hours in combat training to meet face-to-face -face and do in, in, in warrior situations in the sky, dogfights and things like that to really match up to the Air Force. I interviewed a number of Luftwaffe pilots, and, and one of them told me, look, he said, well, every time I pulled the canopy of my Messerschmitt closed, I felt I was closing the lid to my coffin. I only had 16 hours of flight training. I'm fighting against guys that have 116. We didn't stand a chance. But after that, after D-Day, we drop about two-thirds of our ordnance on German production facilities. And we find two Achilles keels in the German war machine. One was oil, which we hadn't hit very hard before this. And uh, instead of trying to knock out an oil facility in one ray, we now have in 44 and 45, the volume of playing. There's this tremendous, as you know, buildup, that production buildup that affects all the forces, all the fighting forces of the Allies around mid 44. And we have enough crews, enough planes, enough gas. The United States controlled 88% of the petrol in the world to really hammer the Germans in consecutive strikes. And we were able to do things Late in the war, we couldn't do earlier. For example, Albert Speer throws a jab at the Americans in his autobiography, Speer being the Hitler's head of war munitions. And he said, if the 8th Air Force, after a famous raid at Regensburg Schweinfurt in August of 43, if he had followed those raids up, those two twin, twin raids, two more Schweinfurts, and, and we were kaput. But what he didn't realize is we didn't have the force structure to do it, even with the help of the British. But by 44 and 45, late 44 and early 45, we do. And so we can knock out oil plants like Magdeburg and Leona, but it takes 12 to 13 strikes to do it. That, that's fascinating what you say about Speer's comment, because these, the Regensburg Schweinfurt raid, which you, which you talk about at some length in the book, is this sort of a paradigmatic example in sort of the popular understanding of the Eighth Air Force have, have failed, or if not failed, you know, er, early missions that are not extremely well conceived that are not achieving strategic objectives, right? Exactly. But, but Spears pointing out, like, actually, you guys were on the right track. Yeah, yeah, he, he, he thought so. There comes a time in any war when both sides are either winning or losing at the same time. And uh, at that time, Germany and the United States are losing. We're taking calamitous losses in these raids. And the Germans are 
it's a battle between destruction and construction, and the construction is winning it. The Germans are very quickly able to reconstruct plants, railroad yards, train tracks, and things like that. Over time, through it's kind of death by a thousand blows. It, it the air war is not about a pinpoint bombing. First of all, is an oxymoron. It doesn't exist, and you, the air force doesn't become effective until that sinks in. And they realize that they have to pound targets repeatedly and unrelentlessly. This is the way Grant beat Lee, you know, and finally in, you know, in 44, he decides he's going to have coordinated, consistent, aggressive tactics. So you can't reinforce weak points along the line just because you have interior lines. And so we begin to fight Grant-like aerial warfare. And it's pretty effective. And also we begin to hit marshalling yards. Why take out the bomber barons finally and the, and the bombing committees finally figure out that why take out an aircraft factory plant, an electric power plant, the plant that, you know, that's making rubber for tires and things like that. Why not hit the trains that assemble in marshalling yards to bring those products to the factory? And they're all there. And many of the marshalling yards we've already hit for D-Day to try to prevent the German army from coming up and, and blocking the, uh, the invasion. And so we knew they could be, these kind of raids could be effective. So we start to pound major railroads and we destroy effectively the entire German transportation system. And as German generals, uh, and, and they're on record copiously in the interviews and things like that, point out, you know, oil's the blood of modern warfare. And if an army can't move, you know, it can't win. And, and volume is very important as well, out, out, simply outproducing the enemy. And, and we could no longer, the Germans are beginning to argue, can do that. Even Speer admits that by January, he had planned to write a letter to the Fuhrer saying, this is it, we've had it. And we no longer have an industrial economy. And when... The Air Force went in and assessed the situation. And of course, it's to their benefit to assess it positively because they're aiming to establish an independent Air Force after the war. And this is proof to the country, they think, that air power may be that alone can win wars, which, of course, is nonsense. But, the, but they, they do make a strong case that the, the bombing begins to finally affect the battlefield situation. The Germans do run out of oil in the bulk. They do run low in France. You know, they can't, you know, they can punch that huge hole in the Allied lines, but they can't continue. They don't have the oil reserves or the manpower to do it. They're still a dangerous enemy, but not so much. So bombing didn't work for a long time when we're trying to hit targets that are almost impossible to knock out, like um, subpens. You know, if you go to Saint-Nazar and some of the sub-pens on the, on the Brittany coast, I mean, they're masterpieces of concrete construction, you know, reinforced concrete, you know, three, four feet, you know, top to bottom. And no one ever knocked, knocked them down. They go down eight or nine levels underground. So we're dropping 500-pound bombs on these things, and we're not getting to the or to, to the subs themselves. We're... The bombs are bouncing off the roofs like the ping pong balls. 
And at the same time, you know, there's very little attrition, you know, attritional damage at the mid-Atlantic. And it's not until we pull those bombers at the very heavy urging of the British and start to fly B-17s on long-range over-water missions to locate subs and then create hunter-killer teams, merchant ships. You put a, a flat top on them and turn them into a, a pocket carrier, put a couple of small planes on there and a, and a boarding team and uh, try to A, sink a sub, and then before it completely you know sinks, get its codes. And, uh, and it, it, it's in this way, this, the slow way, and with this type of bombing, which Bomber Harris in Britain resisted because he's trying to, he's trying to annihilate entire cities with firebombing, and that's not going to work. It's very interesting to see when you get inside the, the infrastructure of the 8th Air Force by examining its records to see how this dynamic worked out. For example, down at Maxwell Field in Alabama, they have a great archive, and I, I was going through some of the records of the bomber barons meeting together after large co so-called coordinated raids where the British are hitting it, the German targets at night, and the Americans are hitting them in the day. And James Doolittle, who's now head of the 8th Air Force, is pounding on Harris and saying, pull off one of these smaller cities like Würzburg, which is a university city, and isn't going to do us much good and join us in heavy raids on oil. It worked somewhat. They were, some, they were able to apply some pressure on Harris, but it's not until we really begin to heavily hit those kinds of targets. The one problem with that kind of raiding is the, if you hit an oil field that generally they're located pretty far from an urban infrastructure where a lot of workers' housing is located. But if you hit a marshaling yard, I lived next to a marshaling yard in Reading, Pennsylvania. My uncle was a railroad worker and there's civilian housing all around. Right? And we tried that at Woodster early in the war one time and it killed a lot of civilians. And there was, some of the airmen were upset about it, but that was, a con that was the moral conundrum of that type of bombing. The most effective type of bombing so far in the war easily, but also the one that kind of crossed the moral divide. The 8th Air Force said it wouldn't cross and expressly uh, hit targets where you're expect, you can almost anticipate large civilian casualties. Yeah. But it, the moral issue I found never rose to the surface as that. Well, the way it presented itself to the air chiefs was sheerly a matter of effectiveness, weighing the war. And so they're out after Harris, not because they think he's immoral, but because they think he's ineffective. And um, problem again with this type of bombing is its effect on, and, and this is one of the things I deal with, is the effect on the crews. And here I get into a lot of the things about the difference between fighting on the ground and fighting in the air. And the more I look at it, I found that fighting in the air is very similar to fighting on the ground. It's, it's a canard to say that they didn't get close to the enemy. I mean, even at 24,000 feet in a close-in, you know, fighter raid on a bomber formation, you can see the eyes of German pilots. This is close quarter fighting without foxholes. And then the capture rates, prisoners are very high. You know, about 80% of them, they're allied prisoners. Up to D-Day in German prisons are airmen. So they see... They see the enemy. 
and uh, through the guards and things like that. So their their war is bears some some strong resemblance, I think, to the fighting on the ground. But you go if you go into the differences, they're fascinating because a combat veteran on the line, like my uncle, was expected to last about 135 days before he could experience the beginnings of, of what the British called stupidly a moral breakdown. They thought that failure to fight aggressively or nervousness or quirkiness or anxiety was a moral failing and that they had missed it in the uh, early examination of the airmen. These are the guys that got through and they called combat fatigue or post-traumatic stress disorder, absence of moral fiber. I mean, that's really cruel. When you consider that bomber command had 105,000 guys flying in World War II in big heavies and 55,000 were killed. That's not casualties, killed. So the, um, the staggering number of those casualties and how they're treated became, back to my main point, became an important theme in the book. Well, if, if I may, can I, I'll cite a statistic that you, that you cite in the book, that in the 8th Air Force alone, there are 26,000 men killed, which is a number greater. You, you made reference to Eugene Sledge earlier in our conversation. Yeah. Author of With the Old Breed. This is a number greater than all of the Marines killed in the war, which is a stunning, stunning thing to reflect on. It, it is amazing. And recent research, I'm told, I'm going back to Maxwell to check on some of this stuff in a week or so, indicates that it was even, even higher than that, that so many of those, so many of the deaths of up to four to 5,000 were unrecorded, lost in the records and things. So, yeah, I mean, we were always told that the highest percentage of casualties were suffered by U-boat crews and Luftwaffe pilots. But I found that First, first, the first to be upset was the idea of U-boat crews. The Luftwaffe pilots suffered a greater percentage of casualties. They almost all died. And the 8th Air, Eighth Air Force you know, comes in there as having just about the highest percentage of casualties. If you reach 11 missions, I worked this out with some mathematicians in my own family, a couple of the kids that went on and got PhDs, and the... Your chances of surviving were these. If you reach the 11th mission of 25, say, initially, which was expected, and then, then later booted up to 35, you reach the left, your chances of surviving, and now we're now zero, statistically. Now, guys made it, but they're beating the odds tremendously. That's at the, at the height of the, of the German raids. So, you know, those are just the numbers, but yeah, the thing is, I, I wanted to put this all, look, I'm a storyteller and I'm trying to write military history as a story, which I think it was, and using all of the elements of good storytelling. One of which is don't depend on hindsight. Don't start assessing wars back to front. See so many books, how did Germany you know, lose the war? How did the allies win the war? Well, go inside the war to a point where they're not winning the war and show how they do it and pick up the story at a point when it could have went either way. And then their decisions 
makes sense. That is, they have fidelity. They are real life decisions that they had to confront. Like, for example, after the Reagan Schwein for mission, there was a big mission at Stuttgart where the Air Force in September really got hammered. And there was talk about eliminating strategic bombing, daylight, and folding the 8th Air Force, Churchill wanted this, into the, in the bomber command. And Ira Aker, the head of the 8th Air Force, actually re-equipped planes for night flights and flew a couple of night missions around Munich. So that was possible. And it was also possible to lose the air war because the morale among the crews in September, November, early December of 43 is at its nadir. And it's almost at a state where the Air Force is fearing mutinies, men simply not fracking their officers, but simply refusing to fly. So do you continue, you know, and I try, trying to deal with the real life situations like why in the hell didn't they use escorts from the beginning? How can the most technologically sophisticated country in the world, how can its engineers believe that a plane like a Mustang is a statistical impossibility? That you can't build a fighter that can fly this high, this fast, and this nimble, and can still deliver a lot of punch. It's if you overload it too heavily with, with munitions, it slows it down. If you put it up there real light, it's going to get you know slaughtered in, in aerial combat. But they did it, and uh, it took a lot of stubbornness and so and a lot of luck, and and the timing was just right. And it really was fortunate that we got that plane in the war. It's the war-winning plane, just in time to make the D-Day invasion possible. Because by the time you get to the run-up to D-Day, we're telling the Germans, and we have this on record, you know, I mean, we're telling the Germans where we're coming. We're flying dedicated uh, missions where we're running into Germany on the same flight path as the previous mission. We're like saying, okay, here we come, try to stop us. You know, and then the air crews now begin to see that they are being used as bait to bait the German planes. Hitler had to defend Berlin, it's his prestige target. He had to send up the Luftwaffe, and the Luftwaffe was no match for these Mustangs, hence this pilot killing campaign that I mentioned. And also, we, we pull off the escorts from the bombers and say, your mission used to be to protect the bombers at all costs. Now, Doolittle says, your mission will be to destroy the German Air Force in the air and on the ground, in the air on the way to the target and on the ground by going to low-level, you know, strafing raids on very dangerous. We lost most of our aces on strafing raids. And yeah. So you've talked about the evolution of sort of the strategic thinking of the, of the strategic air campaign and how we achieved better results towards the end of the war in terms of targeting talked a little bit about sort of our evolving tactics and, uh, you know, the introduction of escorts and so forth. Talk about the German side of the equation, if you would. They they don't defend in the same way in every year. Obviously, by the end, they are much less well, capable yeah, of defending. How does it evolve and, and then deeper? Well, there's hubris on both sides. We think we could fly above the flak and faster than the fighters. And we don't worry about cloud cover and or the fact that the Germans have some of the best fighter planes in the world in, in 38 and 39. And the Germans in turn feel that their air defense systems are impenetrable. 
if you locate 16 or 17 major German air squadrons around, you know, a, a middle-sized city, like, well, Hamburg's more than a middle-sized city, take a city even of that size and throw in tremendous numbers of flak guns, you're going to be effective. Hitler was caught in a dilemma, and, and Churchill pointed it out. He had the same dilemma. The flak guns that the British were using, the anti-aircraft guns, are not effective. Churchill wanted to throw more of his budget in, into fighter production, but he found when he called off or reduced the, number, the amount of ordnance he's throwing into the sky against the Luftwaffe in 40 or 41, the population you know, protested. They wanted to hear those guns, and they believed those guns were protecting him. And the Germans you know, were in the same dilemma, knowing that it took an awful lot for a one flak battery to knock out a bomber. You had to throw a, a, a lot of metal into the sky to do something like that. And the Germans, of course, get more desperate as the war goes on. The, they start to run suicide missions where they're actually diving in. These are volunteer units, you know, inflamed nationalistic German fighters, pilots who believe in the Fuhrer and the fatherland cause. And they're, they're going to go up and not fly missions like the Japanese where they expect to die, but to hit the planes in a vulnerable spot, usually in a fuselage close to the tail and split the plane in two with their propellers. And then, can you believe this, bail out at that moment just after contact or just before contact and get in another plane and go up and do it again. These were heavily, these are slow, heavily armed former night fighters. And, but Germany's reduced to that. And of course, after a while, because of our ponderance numbers in the sky, we just slaughtered these slower, you know, suicide outfits. But even in, in, into the last months of the war, they're mounting these kinds of, these kinds of raids. Well, they, there, there's a period there in 19, I think it's 1940, well, early on, certainly in 43, where the Germans are developing tactics that are effective. I think it's the Munster raid, actually, which you, which you mentioned earlier, where in the book you discuss the, the Luftwaffe throwing, you know, essentially massed fighter formations at the massed, you know, income, the, the focusing mass in on particular yeah, And that was yeah. very effective. Why? Yeah. Because they had more fighters. Yeah. If you did the balance sheet after the battle or before the battle, the, the, the Germans look to be, the defenders look like they're going to win this thing because the numbers of planes and the way they flew, they used to attack the tail, but they would try to psych out the crews by flying past them, right and left on their flanks, get way out in front of them, loop around and come in 10 and 12 abreast. And of course, then you're hitting the really vulnerable targets. You're hitting the pilot and co-pilot, you're hitting, hitting the bombardier and navigator, and you're hitting the, the fuel lines, which are in the wings. So everything essential is up front. This is a the whole air war is an experiment. There's only one bomber war in history. There'll never be another one. This is sui generis, one of a kind. And there's no pattern to build upon. Infantry tactics, you can draw on Frederick the Great, you can draw on Napoleon, you can draw on Grant and Lee. There's no received wisdom 
that can affect historical wisdom, that can affect strategy, air strategy, how it's done. So everything that's tried is wholly experimental. And so we're, we're, we're learning how to fight an air war as we're fighting it. And it's lucky that we have the mass production facilities to be able to do something like that and the numbers as well in terms of flesh and bone. Can I, can I ask a question just that, that your observation there prompts for me? Because it's, it's a live question, I think, for folks thinking about, about the shape of wars to come today, where there will be combat operations in space, for example. Yeah. There will be a cyber dimension to things. There will be new developments in the wars to come potentially very soon that, that are simply that we have not experienced at any kind of scale. And, you know, people in real time are trying to think through the logic of these things, and they are trying to take history and combat that has occurred in other domains and think through how it applies in these new domains. How did that, you know, was there a sort of self-conscious, you, you mentioned mass on mass earlier, you know, that's a, that's a kind of, you know, paradigm of, of thinking about, you know, combat, right? Yeah. Was there a self-conscious effort to apply what had happened in other kinds of fighting in the past to the logic of bombing tactics or, 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 or how to conduct no, a bomb? Really, uh, no, not really. Not really. The, the Air Force is, it, it's a fresh outfit. It's, it's just created after World War II. It has an alarm and a philosophy of its own. And, and it's a pretty cocky outfit. And they just believe that worse. Billy Mitchell, who's really the founder of Air Power, in World War One, he was over there in France, you know, observing trench warfare. It's a simple proposition, he said. Why go through this mud and slaughter type of campaign when you can fly over the enemy army, not even engage it, and hit the civilian? They become the new target. William Wyler, the filmmaker, figured this out early on in a book called Mrs. Minibar, where the uh, chaplain in a small town that's been hit hard in a raid, a young woman has been killed, speaks to the congregation in a bombed out church and says, look, why this young woman? Why the postal clerk the day before? Because we are the targets now. And they're coming at This is a people's war. And Churchill kept using that phrase. So it's, it's just a different way of thinking, the idea that the bomber will always get through and all that sort of stuff. And again, you have to go back to the period, too, where in the 30s, the introduction of the four-engine bomber was like the atomic bomb. We never had a weapon quite like this. We bombed Germany, and Germany bombed England in World War I, but, you know, with dirigibles and primitive type of aircraft. But to take a four-engine machine that can deliver 9,000 pounds of, of iron over Berlin and, uh, and get back is something to think about. And there was, just, there was a constant feeling. What the Air Force misunderstood is the, the resilience of the population. The, in the early treatises on bomber warfare by Julio Duhay and a lot of the theorists of air war, pointed out that the mental capacity of the enemy, whether they're English or Italian, that is of those who are being bombed, their psyches are fragile. 
And with this kind of shock and awe warfare, which is brand new, and with the use of poison gas, dumping it into subways, sewer systems, things like that, will create enough mass panic for the population to revolt and demand a you know, withdrawal from war that it was too horrible even to think about. The, in most of these treatises, the bombers never lose right. because of, you know, the psychological advantage that they possess. It seemed that they were unstoppable forces. Yeah. And the, that's what led to the Air Force into, I think, being into this deluded thinking that they could, they could break morale. Yeah. The military so history. I, I, I really made a contribution. It's morale thing where I, I try to point out that bombing did destroy morale. It did. I mean, come on. You know, we all lived through 9-11. We lost a lot of family members, you know, in 9-11. You don't have 190 9-11s, city like Cologne, for example. I don't know the exact number, but it's about that. And not have that seriously affect civilian morale and, and have an entire city, you know, turned to cinder and ash around you. And the Germans report that cardiac arrest inside the, the bomb shelters, hysteria, all these kinds of reactions. But where we went wrong on this is that because you could create the situation didn't mean it would, you could, it could redound to your, to your side. That is when you're creating, when you're treading morale in a totalitarian state, what do the demoralized people do? They can't resist. And all it creates is atrophy, despondency, despair, things like that. And they can draw back and mentally separate themselves from the Fuhrer and maybe mentally want a different kind of world without bombing and without war. But they can't do much about it. They have to show up at work. They have to show up on the line. And so destroying morale didn't really matter that much. What you had to do was destroy the German economy and destroy the German army. And the, the, the military history of the, of the 20th century is unfortunately replete with examples of some new technology being heralded as something that will make war relatively bloodless and relatively swift. And even when you can achieve effects with the new technologies, well, you, you make a strong case that, that the Eighth Air Force does. They're not necessarily decisive on the timeline or in certain respects at all, unless they're, you know, unless it's in a longer timeline in combination with other means of warfare, right? Yeah. Uh, well, they, they don't win on their own. The, you look at theoretical buttressing as they went into the war, their, their philosophy of air fighting, for example, almost nothing held up. They're not accounting for the weather and the capriciousness of British and German weather. And yet they live in these countries, you know, cloud cover is almost perpetual in Germany in wintertime. And, and, and their planes and crews have a difficult time dealing with it. Frostbite, nobody thought about it. Stomach disorders and, you know, peptic ulcers and things like that from the bad food they're eating. The, and then flying at 26,000 feet an hour later, all these sorts of things just weren't quite anticipated and how you protect, you know, that you could actually go into a combat zone in a, in a machine with 10 men tethered to it. And it's, it's a flying gas tank and the portals on either side 
uh, the gun portals are open to the air, to the freezing blast, that you can believe that that's not going to affect physiologically and psychologically the air gunners in the rear of the plane. That's, or the ball turret gunner and things like that. The last persons considered in this experiment, the guinea pigs, Elmer Bendener wrote an excellent book on this, a flyer himself. And, you know, he said, we, we were the ones, the guinea pigs, the white lab rats, who were the last ones considered in this sort of thing. Until and unless they, their breakdown affect the overall bombing effectiveness. And when that happened, these issues are addressed. You got to know some of these guys over the course of researching the book. That's um, part of doing the book. Yeah, I want to ask you about a few of them. So I understand from, from the acknowledgments of the book that you, your encounters with Robert Rosenthal were sort of critical to the, to the enterprise. Maybe tell us a bit about him and his life and, and time yeah, in the I war. I think every book, every book kind of needs a, a hook. And, you know, writing is a lonely enterprise. You know, you know how it is. You sit at a desk. You've got to create a world of your own. It's not World War II. It's your World War II. And it takes some creativity, and that comes at a cost of isolation and things like that. But, so you need some motivating factors that get you back to the book all the time. Great characters are, are one of these sorts of things. That, and Robert Rosenthal was one of those guys. I met him early on at the project, luckily. I met him down in Savannah. There's a reunion down there, and I didn't know anybody. I, I just showed up. I wasn't speaking or anything like that, but I, I had known Paul Tibbetts. I had done something on him in the story of World War II. And so Paul introduced me to a lot of the guys that he knew from the 8th. He served briefly with the 8th Air Force. And he said, you ought to really meet this guy, Rosenthal. He's quite a character. And Rosie was there with his, Robert Rosenthal, with his family. And in brief, he was a he was the emotional, psychological leader of the Eighth Air Force. Uh, certainly, one part of it, the Hundred Bond Group, and uh, inspirational. And he his story was tremendous. He comes from a Jewish American immigrant family in the Bronx. He grew up near Ebbets Field. He rooted for the Dodgers. Went to Brooklyn College. Graduated with honors. Was All American baseball and football player. And all. His high school career, he wanted to go to college and, and become a lawyer. Got into, a, you know, a, a good law school, Brooklyn College Law. And just before Pearl Harbor, he gets his law degree and he gets a great job with the Manhattan firm, a lower Manhattan firm. And he thought he was in the cockbird seat. And then, of course, Pearl Harbor comes and he volunteers that Monday, Pearl Harbor Monday, and gets assigned to the, to the Air Force and sent to England as a replacement, not with the original 100th Bomb Group, and gets there at the worst time in the air war in, in that what was called the Black October, where the air, air Force begins to take absolutely murderous casualties and flies three consecutive missions, one of which he was the only plane from the 100th to return. So he, he, was, he was an inspirational character. He flew 52 missions. He didn't have to re-up after 25. Everyone expected him to go home. And a lot of people, when they found out he re-upped, thought that the reason was because he was Jewish. And as he told me, and, and as he told several reporters during the war, reporters for Yank Magazine, no, it's humanity that's at stake here, not just Jews. He's a threat to all of civilized decency. 
And so he stays on. He's shot down three times, the last time behind Russian lines and taken by the Russians back to Moscow, flown back to the 8th. And Thorpe Abbott's, his original base, tries to get back in the air war. But at that time, we dropped atomic bombs on Nagasaki Hiroshima. And he then decides that he's going to go and enlist as a volunteer. He's an attorney. So he hears about the Nuremberg trials and he gets assigned as a trial prosecutor and meets his wife on the way over. They get married. She's a prosecutor. She's a Navy attorney. They had a child over there and he saw the last of the Nazi, the most heinous Nazi leaders hanged and helped to bring cases against them. And he was a completely modest guy and absolutely loved by his former crew and friends. So he was really, he's, he's a real hero. So to, to the extent that you can talk about it, what was it like to, you know, see your book set to film and to participate in, in the telling of the story that way and the recreation of well, characters like, like it, Rosenthal? It, it, Rosenthal. It, was good. it was good. And first of all, it's, it's an honor and a thrill. And, uh, you know, when you hear that you've been tapped for this, you know, when I got the phone call from Spielberg's office, they're going to do this thing, you know, I, I, you know, it was a good night. <laughs> And uh, I found working with, with Tom Hanks, who was really more the man on point, and it, it, one of his key assistants, Kurt Sadusky, really enthralling because from the beginning, Tom is a very passionate guy and he throws himself into projects. And he, he told us at the beginning that unless we believe that this could be the best film ever made on war, not just the best World War II film, he really thought we were wasting our time putting ourselves into the project. And he wanted to do a cliche-free movie mm-hmm. and, and one that had fidelity that was close to the facts and stuck to the book. And it was fun to sit in. I had had one of my other books, Chicago, on Chicago done as a week-long PBS series. And it was fun to sit in and watch them reassemble the book in different ways. And sometimes you say, I wouldn't have done that. Or, wow, that's a great idea. I wish I would have thought of that. And I constantly, I was lucky in this film in that I was consulted a lot. I wasn't just a bystander. And Dave McCullough, you know, a very close friend, uh, God bless soul, and know most of my life. Dave told me, he said, he called me actually from, Plato and Hanks' studio, and he found out he was out there by happenstance. And he said, I'll tell you what, he said, you're going to get pissed off at him because they're going to do things to your book that you just don't want done. And at the same time, he said, and they're going to steal from you. Well, I didn't find that, but I, 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 there were junctures where you battle to get something in and you lose, and you just got to accept that. You know, I thought, Maybe we should have done this. Maybe we should have done that. But in on balance, I, I I think most of the differences in the film, places where the film varies a little bit from the book, I think are enhancements. And in their enhancements, because we had a writer, John Orlock, who was immersed in the hundreds bomb group. And John, it concomitant with my own work, is not just writing about the hundreds, not just drawing from my book. With the help of a research historian, 
he's immersed in it and he's doing his own independent research. And he found out a lot of things that I didn't know and, and, and developed some characters I don't develop in my book. So for a long time, it was John, John Orlov, who I knew from Band of Brothers. He wrote, I think, two of the most compelling scenes and episodes in that really good film. And so working with him and with his fellow Kurt Sadowski, who's kind of the showrunner, who's involved with all aspects of this thing, was really uplifting to know that they're running scripts by you. They don't have to listen to you because look, look it's their, they buy the book. It's their book. It's Adam's right. book. Or originally it was Plato. And, and, and originally it was Plato and, well, I'm not going to go into that long story, but uh, HBO, HBO, right? Yeah. 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 And, uh, and I enjoyed working with HBO, the, but they got bought out by AT&T and so on. But yeah, we were like the three musketeers just working this thing along until finally, you know, you get word that, yeah, they're going to really do it. And then you get the big word that it's being green light. Yeah. So it's, it was good. And meeting the actors and seeing the commitment of the actors, but even more importantly, I'd say this, seeing the commitment of the technicians and, 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 and ground guys, as I call them, you know, the cameramen and the lighting guys and the design people going to England and watching them build the sets and seeing guys who were over there for 13 months without a vacation, totally enthralled with the project that whole soul commitment you look for, you know, that you bring to the project. And then luckily you say, my God, they've got the same kind of feeling. There was great esprit among, among the uh, people who made this movie. Was, was there anything that you were worried about in terms of committing this to film that actually beat your expectations? You know, what, what if anything surprised you in terms of what was captured well on the screen about the world I that you've written about? You combat, you know, I mean, you see it done a thousand ways. I mean, um, 12 o'clock high does it well by not doing it at all. The yeah. action is on the ground. It, yeah. It's about the psychological, there's hardly any air combat, but it's a great air war movie. And I, I think that was a good dodge. And I think the way these guys went about it, Gary Getzman, for example, was a major influence here, I think, was to do the air war from inside the plane. We had specially built B-17s for this. They weren't flyable, but they were original to the, they, they were true to the original plane in every particular, every switch, everything. It was incredible, the level of detail. And, but the plane wasn't wide enough to capture a lot of the in-plane, in-fuselage drama. And I think that's where the drama takes place in an air battle inside the plane among the, the 10 or 11 crewmen. And I don't know if we actually set out to do that, but that's the way it worked out. And that really worked well, because I just didn't want to see a bunch of planes flying around in one dogfight after another. Right. Because then you'd have a certain kind of sameness to the whole thing, you know? And, yeah. and then, then avoided that. You're kind of you're kind of getting into it with this answer, but I, I want to ask you what's maybe a strange question. But obviously, everyone is operating off of the to the to extent that's possible the facts, the history that you have documented, interviews with um, with with folks who fought there. But there's this whole other dimension of inputs, right? Which is the art 
that already exists about the air war. Yeah. We've talked about 12 o'clock high numerous times. There's William Wyler's Memphis Bell. There's the kind of, you know, I got the, it's William Wyler who does the documentary, right? And then there's yeah. there's the kind of 90s sort of storybook Memphis Bell. But there's there's art that has been made about this war. What role did that did that art play? Was it like a baseline and Hanks and everyone wants to wants to transcend it? You know, what were the things consciously stolen from it? How did that work? Well, probably the best artist of the Eighth Air Force is Gil Cohen. And Gil goes on. And Gil does magnificent paintings of aerial combat in World War II. And from the Regensburg Schweinfurt mission down to the to the actual mechanics and things like that. Gil has a studio close to where I live in Pennsylvania, in eastern Pennsylvania. I've visited his studio a number of times. And I think I'm involved in a I'm supposed to interview Gil shortly, how they're making it down, doing a documentary on Gil. <laughs> and you, you can't. And he has a wonderful shot of Rosie's crew and Rosie talking to the crew just before they're about to board the plane and go on missions and things like that. I don't know how much that actually influenced us. It's inspirational. It really is. And, and you have to get your, your psyche up for that sort of stuff. But Hanks's message to us was to try to, one of the keys to understanding the film, I think, is, is if you watch Tom's movies about, recent movies about the convoys. Yeah, and, yeah, Greyhound, right? Greyhound is a key because it's a lot like Das Boat, the great German U-Boat film, which a lot of us on the film, on this film, consider the template, you know, the, you know, the platinum, you know, World War II cinematography. Because it's about every man doing his job. And there's no super heroics, no guys dying on the floor of the sub, cigarette in hand, tell Molly and the kids, you know, la la. And and Tom really mentioned that early on. He said, I'd like a a film with that kind of authenticity and fidelity. I'd like a film, if we can do this, that is cliche free. And we really harped on that. If something looked familiar, looked like you've seen it somewhere else, he cut it. Yeah. He cut it. Even some really terrific scenes and some terrific writing. So we're shooting for a muted look, but yet a look that conveys the understated courage of these guys. Um, yeah. They're not barking about their courage and patriotism, and uh, they're just doing their jobs in an efficient manner to stay alive and, you know, to win in Dust Bowl's case, you know, the Battle of the Atlantic, or in their case, the air war. So from the beginning, that was always, always a theme. Well, and I, I don't want to step on anyone's toes here, but I, I'm an enormous fan of, you know, basically everything we've mentioned. Um, I'm an enormous fan of Band of Brothers and the Pacific, but I, I have to say, and this pains me to say as a Marine, that I always preferred Band of Brothers to the Pacific. And the main reason that I preferred it, just, just as a work of art, the main reason that I preferred it is, you know, I'm, I'm a student, as any Marine is, of the Marine Corps' war in the Pacific. And even I found it difficult to sort of follow, you know, where we were, which regiment we were with, you know, the story is trying to do so much. Whereas with Band of Brothers, by picking this one company and telling the story of the European war just through that company, I thought was just much more narratively feasible. And it seems like here with the 100th Bomb Group, there's been a similar decision. And that that seems to me to be to be 
gratified that that seems to be the case. I don't know if you if you agree with that assessment. I, I probably would upset a lot of people who worked very hard on the Pacific, which is a, a marvelous show. But bingo, I think you hit it. Uh, I wasn't in on the conception of the Pacific. I was called in. McCullough called me. He was out talking to Hanks and Kurt Sadusky. And this is the thing they were worried about. They were getting close to closure on making the film, at least in an original iteration. And the great poet Dante once said that hell is a place where nothing connects. And we thought we might be in hell because are we connecting Guadalcanal with Gloucester? Does the audience know why they moved from Gloucester to Okinawa and what Okinawa means in the larger framework? You can't have Alistair Cook come in and sit in a, in a leather chair and explain this, you know, from the Masterpiece Theater audience. Do you do it with some kind of deus ex machina? But that was, I, I thought Pacific was terrific. And I thought it was better than Band of Brothers in its treatment of combat, hmm. the realities of combat. But there was that. Is there, is there continuity? And in a way, it's confusion, not to defend the film, but, but I will defend it. It's confusion does convey the confusion of the American public. You had boys writing from Kwajalein and asking their parents to send them maps. Where am I? <laughs> and, and, and why am I here? You know? And you just, as a grunt, you know, it, it was, you just didn't know that sort of thing, you know? And so, yeah, yeah. I think in this film, ipso facto, one of the, Strengths of the film is built in to the history itself. These guys had to know a lot about the big picture. They were briefed about the big picture. They were told not only what they were going to bomb, but why they were bombing and how it would affect the German war machine. So they're in touch with this. They're in touch with the ground war. They have to know where the troops are, just to know where not to bomb. So you get a, a global picture of the war and the unfolding of World War II, you know, from the points at which we could have lost the war. And you get that sensation that maybe we don't win this thing to the points where we start to win and why we start to win. And that is, I think, better done in terms of com comprehending w what's at stake and why the whys of the war than you do in the Pacific, as good as the Pacific, as good as, as especially the acting is in the Pacific. So one of the jobs I had was to come in and work on the website and work on the script to try to bring more of that connectedness into the story. Because, you know, as Tom used to say, with the band of brothers, you just put out the Nazi flag and follow it into Germany, you know? Yeah. And this is, this is just a little different. It's, 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 it, Ella Roosevelt called it the forgotten war and her son was in it and, it was just a harder war to grasp, the stakes and everything else. But I think this, this thing, you know, you're always, I'm not one who's most proud of my most recent work. I think some of my earlier books are better than some of the later books, et cetera, et cetera. But in this case, this, this is the best to me uh, of, of the three, uh, Band of Brothers, Pacific, Masters. It, it is the best. I am... Um, I'm chauvinistic about it, but also I have to admit that, as my wife said, I'm very picky and very uncritical, very too critical at times. 
But um, I got to say, and I kept raising these criticisms that, that this thing is is absolutely terrific. It really is. It it gets you on the emotional level. It gets you as sheer drama, and the history is is dead on. And, and and we don't try to summarize history. I think when you summarize something, you kill it. You do it episodically and through a, a series of connected stories. And I think we picked some really good ones and made the kind of connections where you see the story unfolding and in a way that is not foreordained, you know, in a way that's kind of has a lot of surprises in it and things like that. That's really hard to do. Gary Getzman was working with him. He's a real genius. And I, I think Tom and Hanks and Spielberg get all the credit. Gary was, a, was, I think, genius on this project. He was the one who, of those three, worked, and I'm going to get in trouble, most consistently on the project and was the most heavily involved day to day. Although the other, Spielberg is the guy who picked the book. I'm eternally grateful for him for that. Um, he, he said, you know, to the guy, we're going to do this book next, and was committed to it. And Hanks' contribution was beyond anything I expected. i just give you one little anecdote. I picked him up at the airport here in the Middle East in Pennsylvania, and that's getting bigger. But he flew in on a wintry day and got off the plane. And he had, he's only going to stay a couple of days, but he had a, two suitcases. I said, geez, you're going somewhere else? He said, nah, 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 not really. He said, one suitcase is just filled with the 20 latest books on German history. That's World War II history, not Air Force history. He wanted to get a sense of what's going on inside Germany, the new debates that are taking place about German popular support for the war, wow. not just getting cowed into supporting Hitler and things like that, and wanted to talk through that issue. And that's the way he is. He keeps abreast of the latest reading on things. And, you know, it's so there's a freshness to his work that you don't find with a lot of directors and an immersion intellectually in the project. I'll make a a bold statement about Hanks's work, which is I, I really think Greyhound is the finest depiction of, I guess, 12 o'clock high would maybe be the tie. The finest depiction of the burden of command, not Absolutely. combat per se, though obviously it's commanding combat, but but actually the act of command and the responsibility. Yeah. I just thought it was phenomenal, and not many people have seen it. It, it somehow kind of slipped by without the world noticing. I saw a guy. I was waiting for a plane in England just a couple of weeks ago at Heathrow, and the guy was sitting next to me, and we were talking. And he asked me what I did, and, and he's a doctor. And not a student of combat or anything. He just couldn't stop talking about that film. Yeah. How it portrayed to him some of the stresses of command of his decision as a hospital administrator, that his decision oftentimes, life or death decisions about patients and things like that, and how you treat it. He was just swept away by the emotional, the understated emotional power of that film. And I think you'll find that here. You, ha- you don't have a lot of guys rah-rah, and there's very little of that in the movie. Not that it's undramatic or anything like that, but it's, it, 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 it's, it's, it's paced really nicely. 
and it has a kind of a measured treatment of human, of the range of human emotions, all the human emotions, but a lot of them successfully, decisions successfully executed because they're done in a measured, thoughtful manner by people who have to make them under inordinate stress. Yeah. Donald, you've been extraordinarily generous with your time today. I'm grateful to you for that. I'm also, I, I should just say, I'm, I'm grateful to you for all the work that you have done on the history of the Second World War and on this book. My, my dad as well was a, was a Second World War veteran. I was a very late arrival in his life. He fought with the 3rd Infantry Division oh, all the way from, yeah, North Africa, Italy, so well, Anzio, my, Colmar. My uncle, as I said, was 1st Division. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I was going to follow up with him, but I wound up, you know, going to the Marine enlistment station rather than that one. But anyway, the, you know, it, it was good doing this. Again, I just, I'm grateful to you. The book and as our conversation, I think just gives a peek at without, we obviously don't have time to read. Yeah, I think we justice. covered a lot of the basics. You yeah. Know. But you're, you get into, I think, issues that are alive and ought to be alive for people who are thinking about strategy today. And, and you know, how do you integrate new technologies what can you expect to, you know, what, what, how, how do you grapple with what you don't know? How do these things tend to go wrong? And what is the human cost? And these, these are all real conversations that yeah, exist we're today. Going down, three of us are going down to, to Alabama to the original tax school where we're meeting with 700 air leaders from around the world. Yeah. And, uh, and they want to know what they can pull from these kinds of experiences. Yeah. Um, it, 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 it's interesting, and I'll be speaking out at the Air Force Academy on the same sort of thing. And while the book was being done, several chiefs of the Air Force invited me down to talk to his, to his leadership teams about Cambodia and things like that. And what the Air Force, not to our own right, but the, the Air Force was really concerned about whether some of these air chiefs is. The Marines have this, as you know, and, and Someone said to me, I, I gave a talk in an air base recently in Macon, Georgia, and they said, well, if this were on, a, it was also a Marine station. He said, if this was on a Marine topic, you talk, this place would be filled to overflowing because the Marines know their history. They, they know the battles. You don't flip Peleliu by things like that. What, what a lot of modern Air Force chiefs are out after is trying to get their guys to understand the legacy of the 8th Air Force and what it accomplished in World War II and about some of these Plessy and some of these big raids and things like that. They, they want a knowledge of that history, good yeah. for morale and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, 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 like I said, I'm grateful to you for the work you've done on the, on the sort of conceptual issues that are alive today and also just for the way in which you're paying tribute to this, this generation which is meaningful to me on a personal level and I think meaningful to a lot of people. So thank you. And thank you for the time today. I really appreciate you uh, joining the show. And thanks an awful lot. You're a great interviewer. You really are. Thank you, sir. This is a Nebulous Media production. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.